this is the book report. Episode. No, we need to cut that. That was awful. I don't enjoy what just happened. <laughs> I was like if you and I decided to talk about our favorite type of cheese to open the episode. Ooh, I'm Jules, and I like a nice Gruyere. I think that might be oh, slightly I'm Steven, and I like riveting. cheddar. Like, come on, this is lame. <laughs> Good lord. I don't know why I find this so beautifully humorous. I mean, you know. Or just talking about what our favorite letter is on, like, a keyboard. Well, I'm Joel, and I like the L because it's it's just easy to hit. Oh, I'm Steven. I like the space bar because it gives me, like, a satisfying clack every time I hit it. This is clack. clack. Like a... Is that the correct onomatopoeia no, like, word? I don't know. Space like bar that pushing? sound. Right? Can you hear that? Did you just mess up your recording by pressing the space bar several no. times? Maybe. We'll find out later. Sure? <laughs> Welcome to the book report. We have no idea how to use technology. <laughs> I'm Joel Dean, and I'm by. I'm Stephen Reese, and I'm not. <laughs> uh, I decided to do that, and then was not going to hang a lampshade on it. But uh, it is coming out day, so I figured I might as well hang a lampshade on that. Um, yeah, that was a way to intro the episode today. On a kind of a whim, wait, we're both talking wait. about nonfiction. Hold books. up. For all of our college friends up. who are listening who thought that Joel and I were gay, you were half right. You were like a third, third right. right. Math's difficult. Because I'm only half gay and there's two of us. So that's, that's, that's how math works, sure, right? Why not? I don't. Uh, dude, we both did liberal arts degrees. <laughs> don't bring math. I also into this. feel like. The rest of the bi community would not like me saying I'm half gay, but yeah, <laughs> eh. that's something. I mean, you're part of the community, so you can say whatever you want, right? Like you get carte blanche. Exactly. I would, I would assume, but I, I get in trouble for assuming that by people that are act, that are, I feel like, more involved. In no, the no, it's kind of like how if you're a racial minority, you can speak with impunity about that entire group of people as if you know everything. I mean, that's how I've been using oh, it, boy. but well. uh, it's it's <laughs> it's gotten me in trouble a couple sure. times. Yeah. All right. So, anyways, I think I cut you off telling people what our episode was going to be like. Oh. I was just saying, last episode we didn't remember to say what we were doing next time, but I have been reading a nonfiction book for a while, and I was finally finished it. So that's what. I told Stephen I was doing this week, and so you decided to do a nonfiction book as well. Oh yeah, correct? I jumped on board because I've got a nonfiction book that I absolutely love, and I will yes. talk about it any chance I get. To my wife's well, chagrin, I have a lot of like nervous energy all of a sudden because I said that out loud in a podcast, and it's not like that's super public knowledge. So <laughs> let's say the names of their books, and hopefully you go first, and I can calm down before I have to. I mean, go I guess we could also just. I don't know. Call your mom real quick and loop her in on this. <laughs> like, uh, she will be looped in <laughs> by the time this episode comes out. Sure. Um, we we can conference call in anyone you want. Do like a guest episode. That way, uh, all of the nervous energy just goes away. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you want the few family members that don't know part of this phone call. That would just get real rough. It'd be our highest rated episode, rated episode, and we both know it. 
I mean, that's true. Speaking of ratings, y'all should all rate and review so you could win free books. Oh, we need to do that at the end. contest is going on. You can do it at the beginning, Well, we'll too. have to do it again at the end. So everyone who's listening, okay. you can tune out in the last 30 seconds. We'll just repeat that. You're gonna ret- you want them to retroactively tune out? I do. I got to keep them oh, engaged. Well, that would be impressive. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> so my book starts with a G. All right? My book starts with a G. A G. Okay, well, I definitely go second then, but Whoa. let's go. Let's do the cover. Let's do the titles of the books. All right, so my book is Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Oh my gosh, you've told me about this. I have this. told you about this, and the fact that you haven't read it means that it's a perfect book for this podcast. That's true. Okay, first of all, I don't read a lot of nonfiction books. If I do, they're almost always biographies or autobiographies or like textbooks. Is that why you've been raving? Is that why you've been raving about Mein Kampf recently? Yes, exactly. Just because you've really (laughs) found some soul-searching moments in that? (laughs) I own three nonfiction books, like physical copies. One is On Writing by Stephen King. One is called On Writing and World Building by a YouTube personality I love. And the one I'm doing today is Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered, The Definitive How-To Guide by Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. So wow. it's a little very out of my wheelhouse for books I normally read, but it is nonfiction, and I loved every second of it. Your book actually so sounds like these... a fiction book. I know, but it's cool. not. I'm excited like to hear memoir. about it. Very excited. All right, so... Uh, okay, but you have to go yeah, first. because No, I'm ready for it. I think I've waited my entire life for this. So, all right. Well, I'm settling in then. Good. So, Guns, Germs, and Steel, first of all, is written by uh, Jared Diamond, and he is pretty pretty smart guy. He's an anthropologist. He graduated from Harvard University and then also Trinity College of Cambridge. He's written several books, but I would probably say that Guns, Germs, and Steel is his most widely read. Um, it was published in, uh, I believe 1997, 19, I think it was 1997. Um, and then recently it's become one of those books that is, uh, kind of given to a lot of incoming college freshmen to read because it's just such a, such an incredible book. Um, I did not read it in college or read afterwards, but that doesn't really matter. It is (laughs) a book that discusses why. It was the European powers that ended up essentially conquering the world instead of like African powers or people from the Americas conquering the world. Um, And so at the outset, it kind of seems like a book that has the potential for straying into racist territory um, or white supremacy. But he specifically wrote the book in order to counter the prevalent ideas that are there's a biological difference between europeans and other races or there's an intellectual difference between europeans and other races and he emphatically stressed throughout the book that that is not the case um so he's fighting against the weird helena blavada sort of racist yeah he's not necessarily writing the book in order to fight against it he's more just presenting a very strong academic argument that happens to counter the other ideologies that are out there um and and the whole reason he writes it is because he was an anthropologist living in New Guinea or working in New Guinea. And he had a friend who was a politician named um, Yali. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. But Yali (laughs) one day is talking to Jared Diamond and he asked the question, he says, why is it that you white people developed so much cargo, 
which means in- inventions or advancements. Why is it the white people developed so much cargo and brought it to New Guinea, but we black people had little cargo of our own? And Jared Diamond is kind of struck by this, and he he just sits there and he doesn't have an answer. Um, again, because the common answer is, well, there's a biological difference, or well, there's just an intellectual or cultural difference. You know, um, in America we have the idea of the Protestant work ethic, um, which as Americans we're like, yeah, we have a work ethic. But if you if you take that idea to its logical conclusion, it's it's basically saying all other cultures are lazier than us. Um, right. And so Jared Diamond sets out to counteract that idea and he starts pulling on his years of anthropological research. He starts really delving into the idea and he addresses it in a really interesting way. Um, and so this my summary of his book is going to be a little disjointed because there are so many interesting points that he brings up um but he basically well, can i yeah ask any questions you i was want, just gonna please. ask is and this is just from a layman's perspective obviously i haven't read this book and i'm not intelligent about history but isn't it isn't a little part of it that uh they were the center of civilization back before like like life started in the middle east and life started in that area and then like grew away from it and it's kind of like a big enough civilization is going to fail and make new civilizations isn't is that part of it or did i just am i just really stupid and showing my ignorance so he doesn't actually argue that the middle east is the one that conquered the world he argues specifically that europe was the one that did so and then okay you also have to even if you're saying like the middle east is what started it all you have to go back even further and ask why the middle east right um and so he he starts to address that and he addresses First of all, the transition from hunter-gatherer to agricultural. And so this book covers a lot of history, but essentially he starts out with the hunter-gatherer culture transitioning into the agricultural realm. And he kind of posits the argument that that happened at different periods in time in different parts of the world. So obviously we tend to focus on Mesopotamia being one of the first places it happens, um, which, which is true. But then you have to sort of um, look at even that instance and say, well, is it actually better to be an agricultural society versus a hunter-gatherer society? And he, interestingly enough, argues it is not. Your life is a hell of a lot easier if you're going out living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle than it is if you are living as a agricultural worker. Um And that's one of the most interesting things he talks about in the beginning of the book because he's saying, listen, if you are a hunter-gatherer, you don't really do a lot. You wake up, you go hunt for food, you eat it, you have sex, you go to sleep, and you put that on repeat. It's easy. This sounds like a great life. Yeah, and you have a ton of leisure time because as soon as you kill your meal for the day, there's not that much else you need to do. Whereas if you are an agricultural worker – you have a full day ahead of you and then your entire life is going to be very dependent on weather conditions. So he makes the argument that agricultural um, communities aren't superior to hunter-gatherer communities. I mean, you're preaching to the choir. I live in Oklahoma, (laughs) which is, you know, the plain state that no one was supposed to live in. It was somewhere they followed the herds through back before the white man came and set down civilizations. No one is supposed to live in this stupid place full time. That's why... Once a year, God uh, like throws tornadoes at the state and tries to destroy us all. 
well, you know, you got to liven up the, the monotony once in a while. And um, so he got um, sorry. I had no, to go on a rant about Oklahoma. completely lose my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> so hunter gatherer situ- civilizations are superior in that respect. But then he goes on to argue that one of the things that leads to societal advancement is obviously having an agricultural society because when you have a field and you're growing grains you're going to create a surplus that surplus is going to need to be stored somewhere which is going to create more jobs both in people to build granaries people to guard granaries people to count how much food you have versus the other guy people to broker trade so eventually agriculture creates cities and then as your city gets larger, it's much easier for you to conquer those smaller bands of hunter-gatherers, which in turn creates larger cities until eventually it's kind of like a plague t- taking over. But even that isn't his, his ultimate argument. That's just kind of the beginning of it. So creating agricultural societies makes for larger groupings of people. And larger groupings of people mean that you need more specialized tasks. And the more specialized of a task you need, the more you need to be creative with your solutions. And so you start to domesticate animals. And with that, what's interesting is he argues that the last actual domestication of an animal occurred 4,500 years ago. So we have not domesticated any animals in the last 4,500 years. Um, And the reason he brings that up is that he argues that because that is the case, that means that humans have essentially domesticated or we have tried to domesticate all animals, and we have domesticated all animals that can possibly be domesticated. Okay? That's, like, something I've never thought about, but... Exactly. That's crazy. Oh, it's wild. And you can even see that in a modern parallel. Um, Think about how much the internet is obsessed with foxes right now. Right? What? Foxes. F-O-X-E-S. So a lot of people love foxes. They want to keep them as pets, but... It's it's pretty common knowledge that foxes are not domesticated. Um, yeah, there's only like two breeds that you can actually keep as pets. And, and even, even then, then even insane. then, they're still essentially wild. And there is a, there's a pretty strong argument that even cats are not domesticated animals. They just yeah, are willing are to hang around people. Spawn. So yeah, that's an academic argument right there. Um, <laughs> Joel coming at you with hot takes God, about Oklahoma right. and cats. Just, that, that was peer reviewed knowledge. Um, <laughs> So anyways, we've essentially domesticated all the animals that we can possibly domesticate, according to Jared Diamond. And he argues that in the Eurasian continent, there are 13 different domesticatable animals over, I think it was 100 pounds. Okay. So imagine like draft animals. So oxen, horses, uh, donkeys, things that can pull a sled or a plow, right? Right. Um, In the Americas, there is one. And that is the llama or the alpaca. Okay. So already um, you set Eurasian society miles above society in the Americas because simply by having an animal that can pull heavy loads, you can build bigger things. You can have stronger cities. You can plow more land. And so that already is going to change the ecology of your continent. It's going to change the societal makeup of your continent. And so he argues that one of the big things that influences whether society is successful or not is geography, where you are from, um, and what animals are around you. So then he goes on to talk about how 
being in close proximity with animals, being in close proximity with all of these people leads to diseases like smallpox, measles, and influenza. Um, and that one's pretty easy to, to look at as well, because think about how many times we've talked about outbreaks of bird flu or swine flu or right. mad cow disease. So a lot of diseases we get are actually coming from animals, um, which we tend to kind of gloss over a lot when we are addressing um, like diseases. We're always like, oh, I got the flu from my sister. I got the flu from the kid I work with at school. Um, but basically, natural selection kind of forced Eurasians to develop an immunity to a huge range of these pathogens. And then when Europeans made contact with the Americas, we all know what essentially happened. Um, the Americans all just kind of died. Um, whereas the Eurasians didn't because the Americas didn't really have that many diseases. Uh, they had a couple, they had like malaria. Um, but that one didn't kill nearly as many people as smallpox did or the flu did or measles did. It's generally estimated that, um, disease killed 95% of the North American population after right. the the Europeans it's got the there. American apocalypse. Yeah. Um, and, and so you really have to look at, well, why didn't the Americas have those diseases? It's not just the fact that the Europeans did and it killed the native Americans. We all know that, but you have to look at the question, well, why didn't the people living in the Americas have those diseases in the first place? Because you would think that diseases are just a earthly thing. Um, if it exists in one place of the earth, surely it should exist in, in another part of the earth. Mm -hmm. But Diamond argues that it all stems from um, both agricultural societies and proximity to multiple types of draft animals. And it can't just be one of those things. It can't, well, it, it can't just be the agricultural society because you have agricultural societies in um, like the Aztecs or the Incans or the Mayans, but clearly they didn't develop these diseases. Um, and so then he goes on to talk about the spread of ideas, the spread of technologies, and he talks about how the Eurasian continent is oriented east-west, okay? Okay. And then the Americas are oriented north-south. Right. So if you are traveling east to west from, let's say... Um, uh, the middle of Virginia, okay? And then you go through Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, Kansas. You're probably going to experience the same climate the whole way through, okay? Sure. Um, you're, you're not really going to have to deal with changing climates. You're not going to have to deal with um, different things that you okay, can grow. Okay, I see Basically, the argument going here. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if – so that's kind of the same Whereas thing with Eurasia. you're moving closer or further from the equator, you're going to have exactly. drastically different climates. So, yeah. So if you are living in northern Canada and you travel to Panama, suddenly you have a hugely different world that you're experiencing essentially because in Canada you might be able to grow wheat in Saskatchewan. But in Panama, you'd better uh, start working on growing – a wildly different subset of crops. Right. So you're going to need um, and the types of animals amounts. you have are very different. So you're going to need massive right. amounts of infrastructure to be able to have a have a huge civilization there whereas the Euroasian you can have relatively minor infrastructure and have a working society over a vastly larger amount of space. 
sort sort of. It's more that the technology that works in the western part of Eurasia is also going to work in the eastern part of Eurasia, whereas the technology that works in the northern part of the Americas is not necessarily going to work in the southern part of the gotcha. Americas. Gotcha. Um, so your cultural differences are going to be huge. The the types of clothing you wear, the way that you live your life is just almost insurmountable. Ugh, and I'm almost, then I almost feel like I should have done the other book because you're talking about <laughs> well you're talking about the real world world building but you're talking about how you should think about things when you're world building for writing and oh for sure yeah awesome. this has huge parallels in that because just thinking about how our world is oriented and how it affects the um the snowball effect of culture really can have a huge impact if you're writing a fictionalized novel yeah absolutely i love it so okay yeah. i'm not i don't want to i don't want to completely cut you off but i do feel like you're almost like giving me the sparks notes version and i'm actually already i've been interested in this book since the first time you told me about it and i'm already getting remembering why i wanted to read this i had forgotten you told me about it until you name said the name obviously but like oh don't sure. give any of don't stop stop giving his points away can you tell me about like the structure of the book and how it's uh like Tell me a little bit more about the structure of the book and like the, how you read it, how the writing style, stuff like that, because you've already got me hooked, um, and I don't want you to give anything else away from it. So believe it or not, I don't think I've actually given that much away. Oh, um, really? I've, yeah, I've given kind of a 10,000-foot view of the book um, because he just goes into incredible depth in all of this. And, and so um, in order – in order to talk about it, I do have to kind of give some of those ideas that he talks about right, because right, right. all of those are the are the framework that he sets up to talk about how culture and all that is affected by geography. Um, his writing style, though, is is it's really compelling. Um, he goes into a lot of deep subjects, obviously talking about some sensitive areas of human development. Because you could very easily stray into um, racist ideology, like I said yeah. at the beginning of this. You could easily stray into the idea that, oh, well, be, and, and there's kind of like um, a pseudo-scientific view that people who live closer to the equator um, don't necessarily work as hard because they don't have to because the winter isn't coming to, to ruin their day. So they can mm -hmm. just kind of live lackadaisically and he discounts that he says that's not the case that's not what's going on here um it it depends on all of these other factors and i've touched on a few of them and he 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 lays out so many more than that and he just does a very good job of really giving you an insight into the world that we live in in ways that you don't necessarily think about because it is one of those things where and i'm obviously a a teacher of history um you always teach your students, Europe conquered the Americas, it was genocidal and lots of people died, but you don't really explain why Europe was so technologically superior to the Americas when we're really just dealing with people. We're dealing with right. people who are just as smart, no matter what side of the globe they grew up on, just as physically strong, intellectually competent. And you never necessarily address why was one side of the world essentially civilized and one side of the world, to put it very crassly, almost barbarian-like. Or uh, I heard one historian say, still living in the Stone Age in the 1400s. 
So Jared Diamond puts that into perspective and does a very good job of explaining why that happened. How much of it is, you said he's uh, archaeological or anthropological? anthropological? Yeah, so that's what I meant. How much of it is mm-hmm. archaeological? Like, how much does he dig into specific events and how much of it is this is the um, anthropological theory about this or this is how the psychology of the people at the time what's the ratio there? so he he writes it as a pop science book um, okay. which means that it's meant to be read by a very wide audience um, basically to disseminate his ideas so it doesn't easily. have like Wikipedia style sources essentially yeah it's a it's a very easy read it's a page turner um, which you don't necessarily get that often in a in a Nonfiction yeah, book. What sounds like um, an but at the same t- at the same time, he is an academic. He is an incredibly smart guy, and so he does um, get a little technical from time to time. I would say that um, if you read the first three quarters of the book, you kind of get the idea, um, and you really flesh out most of his arguments. And you should read the whole book just to see the full scope of what he's trying to say. But after you get through the first two thirds of the book, um, he kind of jumps a little more into the technical aspects of everything he's talking about kind of as if he were defending a dissertation and he needs to back up everything he just said with the the hard data okay so to speak okay because that's the stuff like i like reading this stuff and i like everybody else get into wikipedia holes sometimes but it's if it's a slog to get through i don't want to read it but this does sound very interesting it is fascinating and um, I'm, I'm sorry I talked as long as I did, but no, I think fine. that's, well, I think that's kind of a testament to the fact that this book is, is interesting. Um, when I was doing some, uh, um, a reconnaissance for today's podcast, I stumbled across one person who described the book as, um, a book full of cocktail tidbits. So Ooh. just like things that you can bring up at a, at a cocktail yeah. party as like a, did you know type thing that can spark some interesting conversations. And that really is a good description of the book. I don't know if I found a better description <laughs> of it because he just talks about so many interesting things that you probably haven't really put together on your own, but make total sense once he does mm-hmm. that it does spark a lot of conversation with people. And it doesn't sound like it's, I also love a good conspiracy theory. Um, mostly because they're so easy okay. to poke holes in and I love reading them. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't sound like he's uh, leading you anywhere from your pers- – sure, ex- like your explanation does sound like you were leading us somewhere a little bit. But it sounds like it's much more of a – is he is he putting forth a theory is he, or is he writing a persuasive essay that's obviously le- – like does he have a foregone conclusion or is he thinking things through? I'd say it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, it's it's definitely an academic piece that is backed up by a lot of hard evidence. But at the same point, I think he really believes that his explanation of how history unfolded is the best explanation. And so he he presents it in that way. That's an, and okay. I, I would argue that he does so very intelligently. And um, I've ran across um one or two other explanations for this the same phenomenon but i don't know that anyone explains it quite as well as jared diamond does and i would argue that his his explanation is accessible because it it just makes a lot of sense i gotcha i mean even so far what you've said here has been really easy to follow and 
I don't see any flaws in it. I mean, sure. we've only talked about it for like 30 minutes, but still. <laughs> right. And neither of us are anthropologists and we didn't go to Harvard or Trinity College. And You don't know. You know. <laughs> I actually know quite a bit about your life, buddy. <laughs> I'm, I'm very aware. <laughs> So um, I, I think I've kind of covered the gamut of my book. So if you want to, do you have a final yours, hook for me, or why I would like it specifically? I don't know if I do. I think that the everything I've said so far was intended to be a, a hook, and I don't want to necessarily say too much more. But I will say one final hook is that um, if you look at the continent of Eurasia, it's huge. It has Europe. It has the Middle East, it has India, it has China. And so Jared Diamond even goes so far as to rigorously compare the reasons why Europe ended up being the one that went out and conquered the world instead of China, which was technologically superior oh, yeah. to Europe in almost every way. They had way. the printing press before Western civilization and all that stuff. Right. And so I would say that that is a huge hook because if you just go away with what I've talked about, you would say, oh, yeah, it totally makes sense that the Eurasian continent conquered the new world, as we call it today. But then if you think about it a second longer, you'll say, but wait, why was it the Western yeah, part of the continent instead of China or India or Japan? Um, and so that. I would say is a very, very interesting part of his book where he, he goes into all of the reasons why that happened the way it did. I just want to point out we made it back to China in yet another episode. <laughs> oh, one of my main points in my notes was about China. <laughs> um, and I still, it's like so on the the tip of my tongue that I just want to blur it, it out, but I don't want to hear it. ruin any other part of it. So basically... Um, one of the reasons why he talks about China not being the one that goes out and conquers the world has to do with um, the the literal geography of China versus the European continent. So Europe is split up a lot by rivers and mountains that go all through the continent, mm -hmm. and China is not. And so China is allowed to become this huge homogenous state that is is able to, you know, kind of just do its own thing. Whereas European countries have to constantly compete with one another, fight against each other, um, to the point where around the same time as Columbus's voyage, there is a Chinese explorer named Zhang He who wants to go out and explore the world. But the emperor says no, and that's the end of that. Whereas in Europe, Columbus goes to like four different kings asking, hey, can I explore? Hey, can I explore? Hey, can I explore? And after each no, he just goes to a different country until one finally says yes. Um, That's interesting. It is. That's really interesting. It's, it's super interesting. And so I would, I would say that you should read it maybe just for that whole section because his argument well, see, gets really interesting when you consider the fact that Eurasia is a huge continent and only half of it. Not even half, like a third of the continent yeah, like became the part that, that conquered the world. Well, when you started that section, I was thinking you were going to go with because they were competing with each other, like competition, like nece uh, in necessity. Uh, what's that quote? Something about necessity in, like, is the mother of invention. Mother of invention. There you go. Yeah. I thought that's where you were going to go with it, but I didn't, like, yeah, it was ruled with a single person over in China because it could be. Yeah. Whereas... And like, um, if you know anything about the history of Asia, you'll know that like Japan 
and China both entered into long periods of isolationism where they essentially just cut themselves off mm -hmm. from the rest of the world. And they were able to do that partly because of their geography. Whereas um, if Germany would have decided that they just weren't going to talk to any of the countries in Europe, that would not have lasted long at all. Yeah, Germany would have stopped existing. Essentially, yeah. So. All right. I am very interested in this book now. <laughs> yes. All right. All your right. Turn. Okay. I'm going to tell you, or I'm going to tell you about a book you should read that is going to tell you how to stay sexy and not get murdered. Sweet. Um, Two things I need. If you. What? Two things I desperately need. Yes, very, very much so. Um, if you recognize that quote at all, it means you're probably already a murderino and realize that I'm doing a book written by probably one of the biggest podcasts in the world. Uh, Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark are the authors, and they are they do the podcast My Favorite Murder. Um, they're comedians and true crime aficionados and just hilarious people. Uh, and they sign off every episode with stay sexy and don't get murdered, which nice. we need a good sign off like that. We need a hook. <laughs> oh, I've got one. All right. You ready? I'm very ready. Stay sexy and don't get murdered. Okay. You can't just steal from other people. That you didn't way. tell me that. That was not clear in the <laughs> rules. Okay. So the I got this book. Stay sexy late. and don't ah. get bookworms? No. Um. I Sorry, I need to look at my notes. <laughs> I'm getting <laughs> off track. Okay, so I bought the book late because I waited until actual reviews came out because while I love the podcast and listen to every episode, I don't pre-order things. It's a weird personal order that I've you know broken several times in the last few months, but I try not to. Uh, and I regret not buying it and reading it the day it came out because this is all the best things about a podcast in book form. It's not the meat of the podcast. In fact, they try to like strip away all true crime references this is the this is the cold open and the personal life side of a podcast that are the reason i come back to things it's the personality of it mm -hmm. it's sure. it's the book is hilarious it's reading stand-up but it's also raw real and insanely moving um <laughs> she says there's a phrase I'm, I'm gonna have several phrases and quotes that i have to mention from the book just because I'm not a good as writer or comedian as either of them, so I'm gonna, you know, give it to them. Right. But I just wanted to say there there are several scenes in movies or TV books or TV books, TV or books um, that inspire me and are like massively encouraging. These like watershed moments of storytelling that just show you the immense possibility, the power of the written word or acting. Uh, these moments are things like. Ender beating the impossible personality game and breaking the system. The villain in Watchmen's monologue, where he says he did it 35 minutes ago. Will Ferrell yelling at God in Stranger Fiction. Uh, the corporate owner telling Charlie Skinner to get it back in season two of Newsroom. Stephen King's explanation of book magic in the opening of writing. And now, ridiculous or not, uh, Georgia Hardstark's chapter uh, about the time she met Ray Bradbury. It is the most weirdly inspiring but ridiculous story of someone else experiencing one of these watershed moments. And, like, I read it and got goosebumps the whole time because A, Red Bradbury mm -hmm. is one of my favorite authors, and B, 
it was somebody else experiencing one of those moments that I've had, not ha- not been able to explain why this is so important to me, why this was so amazing. And she did it in a tiny little like five-page essay and did it while being hilarious and quoting Ray Bradbury every other paragraph. And <laughs> it was amazing. It was just so okay. good. Okay. The book is written, um, it's got a bunch of little, and I have the physical book, so if you hear pages turning, that's what's happening. It's written in a series of essays that are memoirs, that are like little glimpses of their lives. Um, and it's based on like sayings that are famous from their podcast. So I'm just going to read the chapter titles. Um, so the first chapter is Fuck Politeness, then Sweet Baby Angel, then You're in a Cult, Call Your Dad. <laughs> then send them back. Then don't be a fucking lunatic. Then get a job. Then buy your own suit. And finally, stay out of the forest. Uh, and these are all quotes that mean things, like mean specific things from where they came from in the podcast. But also, they took them and turned them into actual life advice. That is, while they're not psychologists, they're not um, therapists, although. A lot of the book is encouraging everyone to go to therapist. Um, It's real people going through real stuff and the lessons they very painfully learned from them. It's Mm -hmm. self-care, but it's not the Instagrammable, Pinteresty, I'm really pretty and a narcissist, look at me, self-care. It's real stuff you can really do. And it's like a – I loathe the idea of a self-help book. But it's this is a self-help book that has nothing to do with self-help. It's just a ther- series of people writing like therapy essays and encouraging you to go to therapy and okay. being hilarious the whole time. Very cool. Yeah. It's, Anytime it's, you can take therapy, which is a pretty heavy topic when you really get down to it, and turn it into something white and cheery, that's that's an impressive skill. Yeah, it's and it it's funny. Like I can't – I don't understand – I can't overemphasize that it's hilarious. Like, I'm going to read you just a portion of the opening page, basically. Uh, Let us begin by saying thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for buying this book. Your support truly means the world to us. We know some of you are young, hungry, living off your wits, and whatever spare change you can find in an old coat pocket. So this purchase was a true sacrifice. God bless you, child. The kingdom of heaven Mm. shall be yours. On the other hand, maybe you didn't buy it. Maybe you checked it out of the library. And the only sacrifice you made was hauling your ass to the building. Still, hmm. we like your style, and we love libraries. Never change. There's also a chance you stole this book off your sister's nightstand while she was in the shower, and then later, when she asked if you had seen it anywhere, immediately started a fight to throw off her scent. Hell yeah. We support <laughs> you in any way you want to support us. <laughs> it's just... I like it. Those like amazing... It. That kind of aside, every other page, while telling you very embarrassing, very painful stories from your life, and then trying to find a way to hey, maybe don't do this and you'll be better for it because maybe you can learn from my mistakes and you can learn my lesson. Okay. Uh, so one of the, and I'm a bad fan. I know their names and I know their voices, but I couldn't assign you a name to a voice. And I've seen mm. them even live and I couldn't assign you a name to a voice Ooh, that's rough. or a face. That's rough, buddy. I'm a very bad fan. But, I hope they don't listen to this. The brand you is the do. number one worst fan. Well, actually, if they listen to this, I have very bad-mouthed cats, and one of them is a big fan of cats, so they probably want to mm. like me anyways. But one of them's a stand-up comedian and a frequent guest narrator on Drunk History. The other has, uh, among other accolades, was on like a cooking show for a long time. 
they're writers for um, TV shows or were writers for big TV shows. And I think one of them still is. Uh, okay. But they team up to make a comedy podcast about true crime. Somewhere along the way, it becomes a therapy session for themselves and anyone who's listening. And it's just the most cathartic, interesting, funny podcast talking about really deep, heavy murders, literally murders. It's called My Favorite Murder. But then they synthesize that into a fairly short book of essays that reads – it reads like a Bible study. But the best part of those terrible Bible studies we were given as kids that have these really interesting anecdotes and then try to weirdly twist it into a biblical lesson, it sure. reads like those interesting anecdotes. And it's No, I remember so reading fun. one when I was a kid about um, buying designer jeans. Basically, the kid really wanted to buy designer jeans from like Abercrombie or something, and they fell apart after the first wash, and then the parents swooped in with some hot moral fire. Yeah. It was weird. It was a weird book. They're, okay, all of those are weird. It can go off on another weird evangelical yeah. tangent. Don't really want nope, to. Nope. But the You're beauty not even of... allowed to use the E word anymore. <laughs> okay. Moving on. But the beauty of those things were there were these really deeply personal, relatable stories that they then tried to morph into a moral lesson and usually did that really badly. This one isn't. It's very deep, very personal stories that have a very clear lesson you need to learn from them. And they're never at any point trying to convince you that they're the smartest people in the room. They're always very plainly you should go see a professional if you need help with this. You should definitely go talk to a professional about these topics. I'm a comedian, but this is what happened, and this is how life worked for me. Mm -hmm. You should maybe listen to my advice. And there's a chapter on in here that uh, was really important to me reading it right now. I'm trying, I have just page numbers on my notes, so that's un unfortunate. Um but it is a chapter by because they alternate chapters. It's a chapter by Georgia Hardstark, and it's the chapter in uh, in the by your own shit section. Um, that's Georgia demonstrates the Zen in the art of being a crazy ex girlfriend, uh, and she talks about um, growing up and uh, how relationships work. And obviously, I just went through a breakup fairly recently, and this spoke to me as I started reading the book. But there's a whole section on. Um, not projecting your own fantasy and personality on shy people, on other people in general, but specifically on shy people. And it hurt reading that because that's all I do. I always do that. I okay. always just assume I can understand why people did something or what they meant when they said these things. And she went on this story about how I did it. And so it's stuff like that. That's the reason I think everyone should read this book because – you're going to find something in here that's like, oh, wow, that's me. That's fun. And you're going to laugh the whole time when it's not about you. Um, sure. Yeah. I feel like I ignored my notes and just talked for 20 minutes. <laughs> so I'm going to scan them real quickly and see if there's anything. Oh, uh, just... Notes are for suckers. They're for <laughs> people who don't know what they read. <laughs> well, there's a couple like just turns of phrases that I had written down that I thought were just excellent. Like, um, one of them referred to, uh, said, why do you, something about like, you shouldn't listen to us. Um, and they do a lot of like the writing in the third or the fourth person writing as their audience. 
Mm-hmm. And it was something about like, why should I listen to you? I've learned every lesson I need to learn from this unaccredited junior college we call real life. Nice. <laughs> and then uh, later on, they're talk- she's talking about uh, neither of them are very, um, very highly educated. They're both intelligent, amazing people. But I think one of them dropped out of college and I think the other one uh, just got an associate's degree or something. Again, I'm a fan, okay. but I'm a really bad fan. But uh, I can see that. talk about the idea of, of shameful ignorance and the fact that not knowing something can keep you from learning things. And that happens to me so often. I love to learn and I love to know new things. But if something comes up that I should know um, but don't, I will refuse to learn it because of some kind of, of shameful ignorance, which is a word I had never put together like that. Okay. And so it, I don't know, it just, it's one of those, it's a self-help book. It's a advice book. And I don't like self-help books. I don't like um, memoirs, but both of those genres resonate for a reason. They're out there. People love them. Obviously they sell really, really well. They're whole sections of bookstores. Um, And this is the first time I've read any version of them that I understood why they're out there. Uh, most of the time I've tried to read any of these genres because people encourage you to read books all the time. Um, right. Especially Those memoirs. Jerks. People How dare memoirs. people recommend that you read books? <laughs> what know. type of jackasses would do such yeah. a thing? And what Especially kind of, regularly. What kind of narcissist uh, would do it weekly on a recording that they send out to people? Nerve. The nerve. <laughs> But no, I've tried to read both those genres and most of the time – no, no, always. Always until this book, it's been the literary equivalent of nails on a chalkboard. It's painful. Okay. I can't touch it. And this is the first time I've come close to understanding why someone would want to read either of those genres and I absolutely love this book. Okay. That's so see, I actually really uh, – I really enjoy a good self-help book. I think a lot of them have good information – about the human condition and also just how to like not suck at interpersonal relationships. So I generally enjoy them quite a bit depending on the book, like really depending on the book. Yeah, obviously. And this one is there's, there's none of the, like all the advice is somewhat tongue in cheek. It's all serious and they tell you why, what's serious and what's not, but it's all a little bit. We understand the humor of explaining this. Like we, we get it. Like there's a list of um, 10 starter ideas for self-care beginners and they're all ridiculous but true. Like it's it's a joke that, you know, there's some truth in it, somewhere in it. Uh, the first one is buy any shirt you like that's under $10. Again, mm. only buy well-made jeans but get any shirt you want. <laughs> and, okay. and then it's stuff like saying sorry in real time, practice not reacting to things. Call call an older relative. Just go talk to an older relative. Doesn't even have to be about whatever's bothering you. Just go talk to one of them. Um, uh, remember, you're allowed to be new and not great at things. Go, you know, volunteer somewhere. Adopt an animal. Uh, play an instrument, and then like read a couple of these things. Like it's just weird, tiny, practical advice that. You know, sometimes you just need that. Sometimes you need the obvious basic advice like, hey, go drink more water. Hey, stand up every now and then. And this is from people who very openly and honestly tell you about some of the worst parts of their life and 
then are like, hey, this is some of the stuff that helped me. And I loved it. Okay. Awesome. And if you don't listen to their well, podcast. It sounds like it resonated with you. Yeah. If you don't listen to their podcast, this is a free advertisement for them. It's already the biggest podcast in the world, but go listen to it. It's so funny. And they're great live. And if they're listening, if they're listening <laughs> to us and they want to pay us for the advertisement, we wouldn't say no. That's true. <laughs> That's not true. I'd say no on principle. That's weird. I would never say no on principle. I don't understand Shh, the concept of saying. It sounds good to our audience if we say that. Shh. <laughs> Obviously, we would say yes. <laughs> hmm. No, but yeah. That, I don't even want to know what my shushing sounds like when people are listening to this. That's got to be terrible. I mean, I'm sorry, everyone. It sounded okay over the phone, but you're right. If you were right oh. into a microphone, it might sound pretty awful. Eh, that'll be fine. All right, so uh, do you want me to tell you if I'd listen to it or not? Or I guess that's your turn to do that. Well, I already said Wait, I not listen. want to read, read. your book. Um, my only problem is uh how long that you're a is racist it? and this book doesn't back up your racist ideology i feel like you keep making references to me being racist and me reading mein Kampf. people are going to get the really right. wrong idea about me yes that is the idea <laughs> correct okay the idea is for them to get the wrong idea about you um no it's probably the length of a novel it's around 300 through 50 pages okay yeah that's not as bad as i thought no it's doable i will definitely I definitely need to read this. I think this is one of the ones I want to like own a physical copy of because I feel like nonfiction books, I like to, I mean, I like to own books, period. But I feel like nonfiction books that I can use to reference, I want to own so I can. Okay. Because right now, Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered is dog-eared all to crap and it's got stuff underlined and highlighted. I don't take care of books that I own. I use them. Sure. <laughs> they get brutalized. I understand that. I actually do have a copy of that book, um, like a physical copy, not just on my e-reader. Um, I will need I'm to not borrow saying it. the K word unless Amazon pays me for it, <laughs> but I have a I have a physical copy, and it's actually very well taken care of because I like it enough that I want it to stick around for a while. Gotcha. So I think I might treat things the opposite of you. Well, see, I I mean, but, there are some books that I own that I don't actually open. They're just like I've read those books. I like those books. I want a physical copy of it. And then there are books that I bought, devoured, and then reread and mark things in and put bookmarks and stuff inside them. And those ones usually just fall apart and I have to rebuy them. There's a reason okay. I've bought Fahrenheit 451 at least 12 times and Ender's Game probably more. <laughs> sure. So will you read um, the definitive how-to guide on staying sexy and not getting murdered? Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Like I said, I actually do enjoy a good self-help book. Um, I generally prefer self-help books if they are in podcast form, though, just so I can listen to them on my way to work in the mornings. Okay. Well, um, I, I tend to be able to read. I tend to be able to listen to um, nonfiction a little better when I'm listening to it. Um, fiction, I just I like to read. So I'll, if there's, well, there's definitely an audio book. OK, good. Yeah, then, then I'll, I'll probably so. give that a listen. Then is one of my you know, next two or three books I read. So uh, um, I'm excited. You put a new book on my list. Well, just a second. I have a note about the podcast, about the audio book, but I want to make sure I get it right. Uh, they have some surprising guest stars on their audio book. Okay. Um, 
and I believe it's Gilbert Gottfried, but I want to oh, double check. Oh, that's not a voice I really want to listen to in an audiobook, <laughs> if I'm being real honest here. <laughs> it's just a random... Squawk? Uh, Is that the entire thing? He's just squawking the whole time like Iago? I don't know. Like the guy, the guy's great, but his voice is grating. Okay, yeah, I I think he just shows up for a for a line in it because they made a joke about it on their podcast. Oh, okay. I think, and it might not be him, but I believe that's who it was. Again, I'm a huge fan of the show. I will go see them live the next time they're close to me. But I also have the world's worst memory. I use the I use their show and almost every podcast I listen to as I can't work unless there's background noise and okay. I want to hear people I like talking. So that's their podcast is my work podcast. I listen to them while I'm doing things and that way I mean I love it. I love hearing what I tune in. I usually have to rewind and re-listen to the whole cold open cuz it's hilarious. Hmm. But I if I tune in, I'm going to hear some cool information and some funny people talking, but also I can just leave it on as background. So sometimes they'll bring up stuff – like they talk about how they don't remember episodes they've done and that's how I feel like as a fan. Like we already did this. We're going to talk about this murder again. I was like, I don't remember you all doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm that kind of a fan for podcasts. Okay. Okay. So do you want to read your um, book condom? Sure. So Guns, Germs, and Steel, The Fates of Human Societies by Jared Diamond. Diamond has written a book of remarkable scope one of the most important and readable works on the human past published in recent years. Winner of the Pulitzer Prize and a national bestseller, the global account of the rise of civilization that is also a stunning refutation of ideas of human development based on race. In this, quote, artful, informative, and delightful, unquote, William H. McNeil, New York Review of Books, book, Jared Diamond convincingly argues that geographical and environmental factors shaped the modern world. Societies that have that had a head start in food production advanced beyond the hunter-gatherer stage and then developed writing, technology, government, and organized religion, as well as nasty germs and potent weapons of war, and adventured on sea and land to conquer and decimate pre-literate cultures. A major advance in our understanding of human societies, Guns, Germs, and Steel chronicles the way that the modern world came to be and stunningly dismantles racially based theories of human history. Winner of the Pulitzer Prize, the Phi Beta Kappa Award in Science, the Roan Poulenc Prize, and the Commonwealth Club of California's Gold Medal. You could have just told me it won the Pulitzer Prize and I would have been like, yep, I'm reading it. <laughs> Great. We could have made this podcast uh, about an hour shorter. Good to know. <laughs> Okay, one thing that seems very obvious as you were reading yours is nonfiction books have much longer book jackets. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) So, Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered, The Definitive How-To Guide is a conversation between friends, Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark, about what they've learned from their biggest mistakes, their most triumphant successes, their favorite therapist, and their mutual obsession with true crime. From growing up as latchkey kids to their formative years working at The Gap and Hot Topic to their struggles with substances and mental health. Karen and Georgia share a series of captivating stories about some of the most significant moments in their lives. Together, they inspect their own hard-earned wisdom with brutal and hilarious candor. In a culture that mythologizes killers, celebrities... Wow, I cannot read today. Mythologizes killers, celebrities, personality-corrupting toxic masculinity bullshit, 
and holds victims responsible for the violence committed against them. Karen and Georgia preach self-advocacy, self-love, and freedom from responsibility for other people's choices. Guided by their own experiences and revelations with a little help from the Riot Girl movement and rule and billions of hours of therapy, Karen and Georgia are here to encourage you to put your own needs first and become unfuckwithable. Part dual memoir, part life manual, Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered is an account of two lives that collided over the dark stuff. Inspired by the empowering and offbeat battle cries made famous on their hit podcast, Karen and Georgia recount the moments of their lives that taught them everything they know and everything they don't about life, friendship, and various pancake situations. So I thought we agreed to read the dust jackets, not the first chapter. <laughs> that was the dust jacket. It was just long. <laughs> Yours was long too, sir. <laughs> so long. All right. Well, cool. I I liked your explanation of the book, so I'll I'll probably give it a shot despite nice. the chapter long book jacket. Well, <laughs> well that's all well, I've got for you. So okay. Well, we have some. Oh, actually, we have quite a lot of like. Uh, housekeeping stuff to do here at the end gotcha. yeah church announcements, announcements. cool <laughs> i like church announcements we should definitely call it that uh so a contest is ongoing please enter you could win one of these books we talked about today or one of the many books we've talked about so far oh, yeah, and don't forget review. the book will be delivered to you oh, by God. joel with his famous s'mores cookies while he is wearing a Chippendale outfit. See, you're just going to add something every episode. I'm going to be giving out sexual anything. favors Joel, by the end of We this. are staying true to the original intent of this contest. So you better pony up and deliver. <laughs> you should ignore everything Steven is saying at all Joel is like Jimmy times. Johns, all right? He will deliver the winnings of this contest <laughs> within 30 I, minutes. I want to do a shout-out to some... I'm talking over you now. I want to do a shout out to listener mail. Uh, our friend Jillian uh, gave us some recommendations, but also asked if nonfiction was going to get a shout out. And yes, nonfiction got a very big shout out in this episode. Um, and um, yeah, the rest. Yeah, she asked me to keep some of the rest of this private, but. She gave a list of books that I will definitely be checking out and I've shared with Steven that we'll have to look into. But yeah, we got fan mail and that's fun. Uh, there were other notes. Uh, there was other church announcements I had, but I'm blanking on them. Did you have any? No, no. Just that uh, your Chippendale outfit is in the mail. It'll be there just in time for the contest. So okay. make sure that you deliver to all of our fabulous readers. The cookies do need to be warm, by the way. Okay. That's, I think that was in the last podcast. Did did you have a idea for how we should do our special Halloween episode? Oh, special episode? Halloween episode? Um, Where oh, we announce the winner, winner, if we mm. should do something else. It could be a short one. I think I like the idea of maybe reading each other our favorite creepypastas. What is a creepypasta? What's a creepypasta? creepypasta? It's the copy and pasted stories that are on line that are short scary stories no idea the famous like slender man and uh do you just mean internet urban that's the only one i can think of offhand is that what you're saying yes yes they're known as creepypastas get with the culture you teach children yeah and they're obsessed with tiktok right now i had no follow-up to that is tiktok not just vine am i really old but isn't tiktok just vine it's vine i think okay why? Okay. 
It doesn't. It's my only question. Just Every time I see sign it. off. God. <laughs> um, happy coming out day uh, to anybody who feels alienated or weird. That is a friend of mine personally that I didn't tell this to. I'm sorry, but also not that sorry because this is my life. Get over yourself. Uh, for those of you who need the encouragement, um, coming out is not for everybody, but it is a thing and life does get better and easier. Um, that's my tiny little spiel for that. And I don't have anything else. I don't think. And, uh, I'm Steven keeping it lighthearted over here. (laughs) Um, in lieu of a good sign-off, we're just going to tell you to keep reading and like, share, and subscribe. Don't keep reading. Do drugs. Drop out of school. Cover your bases, kids. There's also that. The only I way mean, to get ahead is by following waiting. my advice. It's by following <laughs> my advice. I couldn't think of anything. Just leave me alone. That's what happens when you do drugs, drop out of school, and whatever the other thing I said I mean, how many of our favorite authors definitely have substance abuse and alcohol problems? There might be a lesson there. I'm going to stop recording before we encourage someone to do drugs. Yikes. (laughs) Even more full-throatedly. Good night. (laughs) 